Welcome to Run This World. My name is Nicole DeBoom. I'm a former pro athlete turned entrepreneur. Each week, I'll bring you insights and inspiration from some of the world's greatest visionaries who will help you run your world in ways that you didn't even realize were possible. All in the framework of the amount of time it takes for the average person to run a 5K. That's 36 minutes and 38 seconds, give or take a mile. We often go long, so get ready. Thank you for spending some time with me today. Now let's get this workout started. This episode is brought to you by Skirt Sports, a company that I founded after winning the 2004 Ironman Wisconsin wearing a running skirt, the very first ever worn in professional competition. I then went on to launch a brand that I am so proud of. We've been around for over a decade. We've grown from just running skirts to become a full line of women's fitness apparel from head to toe for hot weather, for cold weather, for all kinds of activities. But the greatest thing about skirt sports is that we provide products basically that make women happy. And we do not discriminate. We welcome women of all shapes, all sizes, all ages, all levels of activity. We are the most inclusive brand in the market, and we love hearing from you. We love you so much that we are offering a quarterly giveaway of a $150 gift certificate that you can redeem online at skirtsports.com, or if you live in or around Boulder, Colorado, come into our retail store on the corner of 28th and Pearl Street and redeem it in person. We love to see you, and we'll help you by giving you a personal shopping experience that you would never find anywhere else. So go over to our Skirt Sports Facebook page, click on the giveaway tab, and make sure you sign up. We will pick one winner every quarter. Hey, everyone. I hope you're having a great one. I am coming at you from Boulder today, uh, single momming for a few days because my husband, Tim, is on the coolest trip ever in Alaska. In all the travels we have done throughout our racing career, we both had never been to Alaska. Tim is an ambassador and a photojournalist for a new race that will be held up there called the Alaska Man. And uh, not many people can get up to the coolest spots on the course to actually take photos and video. And Tim is one of the kind of people who can. So he's up there doing cool stuff. Um, I'll have to do a 10 with Tim when he's back and we'll fill you in on it. And for me this afternoon, I got lucky because I actually asked my daughter, Wilder, if she wanted to nap. And she said, yes. Wow. So I'm squeezing in a little podcast action. Um, and I'm really, really excited to introduce all of you to this guy, Tal Thompson. Um, Tal, it's, it's interesting because many of you are probably asking why I have a teacher on the show. Tal was nominated for Top Teacher in America last year um, through the Kelly and Michael show, and he ended up being the runner-up. And what you see about him through these videos and interviews is just so dynamic. Everybody in the country saw this, decided they wanted a piece of him. 
and he decided to take his message more seriously. So I met Tal at a speaking event that we both did in June in Colorado called Evoso Live, and he did the most amazing talk about confidence and about how our children are lacking that one thing which will actually help them become very successful in their lives and what we can do to change it. And I just thought it was a topic that all of you would appreciate listening to. And along the way, throughout our interview, we um, we touch on a lot of other cool things that I think you will take away to help your lives, um, to help improve your lives. So without further ado, I am bringing on Tal. Hey, everyone. I am so excited. Today, I have the tallest person I've ever had on the show, which kind of is funny because I'm not actually sitting here in person with him, so I can't see him, but I know he's the tallest person I've ever had on the show because I just spent the most amazing six months working on a speaking program with this guy who you are going to be so inspired to hear from today. Welcome, Tal. Hi, Nicole. How's it going? I am doing great. So I'm sitting here in Boulder, Colorado, and we're having one of our notoriously awesome days. (laughs) Tell us where you are today. (laughs) Today I am in Western Michigan, my uh, family or my wife's hometown of Lake Odessa, Michigan. Um, And we are having a nice, I think it's about 73, 74 degree day, overcast and a little dreary, but I'm talking to the positivity guru. So sunshine is always blaring in my, in your world. (laughs) (laughs) That is so true. But you know what's cool is, um, so we got to know each other through a program that we did to refine our message and our speaking because it's something we both enjoy and know that we have a vision we want to share with future. And while my message really focused around positivity, your message really did too. It just kind of used a different word. That's right. It, It really does. It's, you know, and a lot of the connections that happened throughout this whole event was about positivity and, and seeing the world in a different way. Um, you know, the word that I'm really focused on is confidence or, or false confidence and um, finding ways to create a better future for our kids. And your, your positivity message directly relates with that, the, 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 valid, the, the validity of real positivity, and, and which, which is what mine is, the real confidence, the earned confidence in when it's delivered in the right way and when you cultivate it in the right way, you see pretty amazing things. And if I do my job of creating in, the, in our education world and creating kids with real earned confidence, then, wow, your job's going to be a lot easier because they'll, they'll be much more positive and it'll be real, real, and it won't be something that's such a struggle for them. You know, let's, I love this. So let's talk about why confidence is, is important to you. Like everybody knows you're a teacher, you know, we've put it out there, but I want to, I want to dig into this. What they might not know is that you were nominated for best teacher in America. So why, why, why are you the one, why should you be the best teacher in America? I think what, what is unique and what people are drawn to when they see my classroom or, and it depends on who you talk to. If, if you talk to it, a kid standpoint, some of the things they might say is, you know, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's very engaging. We do a lot of exciting activities. There's so much music in our classroom. Um, I love to hear kids as the year goes on to start saying that they feel like they're in a family um, rather than just in a classroom. School's exciting for them. They wake up ready to go to school. 
and it's and eventually you'll get kids to start talking about you know I'm doing stuff I never thought I was able to do and I'm a lot smarter than I thought I was and which is great you, you know you're bringing out the confidence the self-esteem in kids so I love to hear my kids talk as the year goes on about themselves and be able to feel good their you know chests are pumped out and they feel good about themselves and you know if you talk to parents you might say it depends on when in the year you talk to them in the beginning of the year. Um, I would recommend not talking to them because it's kind of a, I kind of shock the parents on what, you know, what their kids are capable of. And I think parents in America right now are, you know, they hear the dreaded phrases common core or different types of curriculum or what, you know, the homework load. And they kind of freak out because they see their kids struggle. And it's hard for parents to see a kid struggle. It's hard to, you know, let your kid go through a tough situation. And um, I try to warn them at the beginning of the year that, Trust me with this. Just let the process go. And about halfway through the year, hopefully before that, you'll start to see a major shift in your kid. And so if you go and talk to the parents as the year goes on later in the year, they'll talk about, I didn't know that my kid could do that, and especially if it's a shy kid because they're, you know, they're standing in front of the class leading debates or um, we do a lot of music and, and dancing in our class because I believe it's a way for kids to build confidence in themselves just by dancing and with a bunch of kids around them in a support group. But then they'll also say, you know, my kid comes home and I never have to tell them to do anything anymore. They're just, they're driven, they're focused, they know what they have to do. And they, they know that, you know, sometimes it's not fun, but I got to go home and do my homework and crank it out because not for Mr. Thompson, not for anyone, because I need this to succeed. And I need to be prepared because tomorrow Mr. Thompson's going to have a tough task for us and I need to make sure I'm ready for it. And, and they're excited to get their, their work done so they can come in and go through some activity that they know is going to be really hard. Whereas I, I feel the reason it's a process to get to that point, I feel a lot of kids are terrified of tough situations because they're afraid to fail. And um, we really focus on embracing that failure and, and understanding that you know, through failure comes growth. And that's when you, when you, when you can embrace failure and, and see it as an exciting tool to success, then you know, sky's the limit. And the parents love that. They love to see their kids not come home and you know, they don't want to see a kid fail for sure, but when they do see them fail, they love to see them cope with it and, and deal with it and use it as a fuel to move forward. And so I think it's just a unique classroom going back to the original root of this question. Why me? Um, I think it's just a fun classroom. It's an exciting environment, but it's hard and it's challenging. And um, I set the expectations extremely high for kids and that freaks some parents out early. But once they see them start reaching them, then it's like, holy cow, this is this is special. So that's the environment I try to create. Oh my gosh. Like everyone listening wants you to not only be their kid's teacher, but their teacher right now. It's so <laughs> cool. You know, you said something that's almost like it, it's great, but heartbreaking at the same time is that kids will come out of your classroom and say, I'm smarter than I thought I was. And what makes me sad about that is that they go in thinking they're limited in some way. So why, like, where did they pick up that they're not as smart as they can be? There's a lot of factors that weigh into that. There's obviously a um, educational system flaw that I see as a, it's, it's really inhibiting kids from being their best selves and not seeing themselves as their best selves because we talk about it a lot in education and you can't find a, um, an educational reform article that doesn't talk about high stakes testing and its impact on kids. I think they see their value as a student as that four or five day period late in the year when we do the, the state testing in whichever state you're in. And that's their goal for what makes them a success as a student. And when they come out of that, those tests are always really hard. Um, they're always 
way more demanding mentally and almost um, brain compatibility than what they should be. You know, we have kids sitting in a sitting at, sitting still for two and a half hours on a writing test or a science test, and you know, kids that developmentally can't do that. Like at two and a half hours sitting still, taking a test, being focused that long. So when they're done, they beat themselves up and they feel like I just did this whole year to prepare for this, and I can tell I didn't do well because it was so hard. Well, it was hard because. They can't sit for two and a half hours and take a test. It's ridiculous. And so that starts to develop, um, you know, the, the, the culture that happens at home sometimes is really tough for kids. The idea that, you know, the pressures that are put on kids from parents because they're so driven to see their kids succeed. And um, so there's just a lot of pressure on kids. And, and also they just, you know, I think this is a, an underlying problem is that kids in the school system also, um, they, they go through and they, and, and school is sort of easy at sometimes for kids, and sometimes it's really hard. But I think in a lot, what I'm seeing more recently is is just kids going through the process, and, and it's just too easy for them. Like the expectations aren't high enough in a lot of different places, and um, so they don't value how smart they are because they. It's kind of hard to explain. Really, they see it as you know, I just I just show up at school and I crank out a test and I get a hundred. Well, they don't value how hard things are, and that's where growth takes place. So. Um, the first time they see a challenge, when it comes around and they fail it, then they're like, oh, I'm not smart. I'm like, because they're so used to easily being co- considered yeah. smart that True. by the time they get a tough task, they fail it or they you know, get a C on it or, or they just walk away from it mentally feeling like, I did, that was hard. And, and so they feel like a failure because they haven't been exposed to tough things enough in their life. That's kind of one of my hardest tasks is getting kids to understand early on that you know, when you when you get done an assignment and you didn't feel perfect about it, that's not the end of the world. But let's figure out what we can do next. So there's so much good stuff in here. One of the first things that grabbed me was there's a uh, uh, what do you say a uh, mind body connection here. Like, yeah, nobody, whether you're a kid or adult, can sit still for two hours completely focused. So mm-hmm. what is it about your body and why you need to be moving? What does that do for your mind? Well, I think it's a that's that's a big push, and you're seeing that in a lot more classrooms in America. Thankfully, right now is the whole uh, movement experience in the classroom. Looking back, I think anyone that's listening to this, unless you're one of those kids who could just sit still for a long time, I was not. I was a squirrely type of kid, and to sit still in a class in a wood back when I was in school in a wooden chair, you know, by lunchtime every day, I, lunch became the most exciting part of my day because I knew I got to move, like get out of there, I get to go go to the walk to the cafeteria and then after that was recess and so you hear so many kids talking about their favorite thing or favorite part of, of school is gym class or recess or in anything that's outside of the classroom it's because they get to move and that's to me that's that's a red flag but it's also a target like okay this is what kids love this is what they're excited about so how can we do that how can we bring that love into the classroom well um, there's there's as an athlete, there's definitely something to this like uh, creativity and uh, I don't know exactly how to phrase it, but what happens when you're moving and when you're in a state of physical activity, your mind frees up, it gets clearer. It, 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 I don't know what you, maybe you have some more thoughts on that. Well, I think your audience, you know, could definitely connect with what you're saying right now because I'm assuming I'm, I'm not the, I'm, so we talked about how tall I am. I'm six eight. I'm not built to win any marathons at this height. Just so the audience knows, I, I tried to enter a marathon once before, and I ended up getting a stress fracture in my foot. First thing the doctor <laughs> told me was, he's like, "You're running a marathon." And I said, "Yeah." And he said, "You ever watch the Boston Marathon?" And I said, "Almost every year." And it's like, 
when's the last time you saw a six eight guy come flying through the finish line? And I said, no. He's like, you're not a gazelle. You're a big old giraffe. They don't run marathons. So pick a different sport. So, but I do know that I work out every morning. And I, you know, every morning I go to the gym, I'll get on an elliptical and I'll do some sort of workout. And it's amazing. I've had to start putting my phone next to whatever, you know, the spinning bike or whatever I'm working on. Because I come up with such great ideas when I'm doing that. There's some sort of fire up activity that goes on in the brain where my creativity takes place in the morning when I'm running, when I'm on the elliptical. And so I try to take notes when I'm coming up with really sometimes my greatest lesson plans come from the workout center. And so I think there's just it's it's something, you know, the blood gets flowing, it invigorates the mind, it invigorates the body, it, it generates excitement, really. Like just you know, if that's the most exciting part of their day is recess, because it, a lot of times if you watch a kid on recess, they're literally just running around like a maniac. Well, it's because it's invigorating. <laughs> it's exciting. So let's create without that kind of hysteria in the classroom. Let's create that movement so kids are excited. So that's why I have so much movement in my classroom. A lot of times we don't sit down for an hour. Like the kids are moving the entire time. They're allowed to stand up when I teach. They're allowed to sit on their desk when I teach. They're allowed to um, go sit in a different part of the room. And that's fine. As long as they're maintaining eye contact and being a good listener, that's better. But then we also try to create activities that have as much movement as possible. And you'll hear your kids saying phrases like brain breaks and um, mm. where the teachers try to give them every certain amount of minutes. All right, their brains can't handle it this long, so we got to find something else we're going to do. So they stand up. They have tons of apps and uh, technology tools that get a kid up and they'll do dance moves. They'll be excited. They'll play a little game. Maybe it's three or four minutes, but then boom, right back to focus and their minds rejuvenated because of that movement that is and it's a great point and hey that's a valid thing for anybody who is in a nine-to-five job sitting at a mm -hmm. desk when you know when you're getting into your funk and your eyes are starting to glaze over and just that little bit of movement can trigger you back exactly and that's I mean that's what we tell the kids too like some of them I can see kids and some of the kids that are you know, labeled as ADHD, or we just know are a little bit more swirly than other kids. Um, we have a big open area outside of my classroom, kind of like the, I don't know, it's like a 30-foot wide hallway. It's a big open collaborative space, and sometimes I'll just go over when we're doing something, or maybe it's a small group activity, and I can tell that they're just, this, they're not ready. I'll just say, hey, go give me a lap. And I'll just walk out, and they'll walk that lap. Someone will jog it. Someone will go outside, or I'll say, hey, you know, go out there and give me 20 jumping jacks. And it's not a punishment, because we've had the conversation beforehand, that they just need that point where like, all right, I got to regather, I got to refocus. And then they do it and they'll come back in and, and uh, right back at it. And some of them look at me and ask, Hey, I need a lap. I'm like, all right, go do it. I'll run it with you. I need one too. Let's go. And so we'll go out and do that little process, come back into the classroom and then they're ready to go. And yeah, that's definitely a powerful tool for the workplace. I would imagine. Um, I'm lucky enough to, well, I should say lucky enough, double-edged sword in teaching. There's a lot of perks and a lot of negatives. One of the things I'm, I consider to be really lucky is I don't, ever have to sit down. I don't keep a desk in my classroom because I don't want to sit down. And um, I can't imagine sitting at a job from nine to five. But there's some perks that come from that, I'm assuming, financially that are different than teaching. So good for you guys. <laughs> <laughs> teaching is definitely not one of the highest paid jobs in America. <laughs> no, no, it's not. <laughs> so, um, okay, a couple other things. So uh, what's going on with P.E.? Is that being cut? Like, I've heard it's very different now than when we were kids, and I want to talk about that too. But is PE in jeopardy of going away? You know what? I've been teaching for 16 years, and I can see there's a different trend developing um, in PE right now. When I first started teaching, it was, um, I think we had PE at least two times a week, some, in some cases, three times a week. And they were probably 45, 50 minute sessions, and um, which 
there's a lot of perks to that. One, obviously, the movement that we just talked about. Two, a PE teacher could really dive into, you know, dive into a sport and understand that I'm going to see these people in two days, two days from now or three days from now, and and we can build on whatever the concept was that they were trying to teach. And and then it dropped down to one or two days a week. Um, right now, in the school system I'm in, the kids have PE once a week, and it's I think they're at 50 minutes once a week, and then they have a 20 minute recess. I don't think it's I hate to think that it's in jeopardy of getting cut completely. I think the economy is starting to shift back up so that that idea, that mindset um, would hopefully leave some of the decision makers. I, I believe it's something that not just PE, but art and music. I believe those three things need to be taught way more often because they they really are, to me, the most powerful tool in a, in a day for, for creating creativity. We have, you know, people think, well, it's just the arts. And I'm like, well, my kid's not going to grow up and be a musician, but you know, in art class, in music class, you're developing such strong creativity. And in PE class, you're developing creativity as well, but you're also creating habits. You're creating a mindset that this is valuable in my life. And um, and with the obesity problems that we're having and the um, laziness problems that we're having and the lack of motivation, it's so important. It's, it's not showing up in any standards, but it's you know, just like when I talk about confidence, those those things are more more crucial to the development of our future leaders and our future just citizens than, than probably understanding the impacts of the Revolutionary War. Like, we've kind of lost our focus on what those really important things that kids need to leave school with. And creativity and being having drive, having self-motivation, and having confidence. You know, I'll take that any day over a kid who can regurgitate facts and figures. Well, it's, gosh, go in our little uh, way back time machine here and I think I had PE every day as well as art and music. At least you had art and music like every day for a semester. Mm -hmm. Every day we had PE all the way through high school. Mm -hmm. So it's so strange to me that that, that and, and the art and music world. I mean, I remember doing cooking and shop and all these like... Oh, exactly. Yeah, it wasn't just academic. And I can... I do think you're probably right. Like those are the things that became breaks in the day for your body and your mind. That's a bummer, man. We got to. Yeah, it is a bummer. Okay. So then let's say, how is a classroom different today? And you teach fourth grade, right? I have taught fourth grade. Next year I'm teaching fifth grade. Ooh. So. Yeah, I got smart. I got smart enough. They're moving me up. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so let's say what you know. So how is a fourth grade classroom different now than when we were kids? Oh, it's, well, I, the biggest change is technology. Technology is a massive, um, a massive change in what's expected in the classroom. I think it depends on the teacher in the, in the district or the state, I, I guess, on how big of an impact that is on what's, what, what that entails. You know, like right now I'm sitting in Western Michigan in a, in a smaller school district where I used to teach and technology is part of the curriculum here. Obviously the kids need to be exposed to curriculum, but it's not, Financially, it's tough to have it to be too big of a deal. You know, this is a very small farm farm town, and most of the class, most of the schools will have a computer lab and maybe a, a cart of iPads. And so, getting technology in kids' hands is a little bit harder because everyone's fighting over. You know, I need to get in that computer lab at this time. I need to use those. So it, it's not constantly in the kids' hands. The school district I'm in right now in South Carolina. Um, is a one-to-one school district. It's uh, every kid, I believe, in second grade through twelfth grade, all has their own Chromebook, and we're a massive district with thirty-eight thousand students. So, you know, thirty-three thousand of those students all have their own Chromebook, and it's in their, it's on their desk all day long. And so, teachers have that ability to expose kids to technology 
as much as they want or feel comfortable doing. And it's and there's pressure from the district and, and from the state because if you're going to spend all that money on that technology, you better be using it in your classroom. So that's one major change. To me, the most drastic change for these kids and for what, what school looks like right now is two-part. One of them is, like I already mentioned, the high-stakes testing. I, I think if you look back and when you were in high school or whenever it was that you took that test, um, I, I really don't remember that being a pressure part of my life. I remember hearing about it and knowing, oh, next week we got to go to the library and take that, that stupid test we took last like, year or whatever. Wasn't it like the Iowa something? Well, it just depends on what state we're in. Like, it oh. might have been the CSAP or the MEA or whatever it was, but um, it was just a small, tiny test that you would take and you would get done. You'd walk out of the room when it was over and... I don't remember ever hearing anything about it. Like the teachers may have been using it for something or the district may have been using it for something, but there was zero pressure. The teachers didn't teach about, talk about that test all year. When I graduated college, like the overall theme in every class I took was do not become a teacher that teaches to the test. Don't teach to the test. Be a holistic or a whole child teacher. And so that was not an important part of the educational system. And now, you know, no child left behind back in the George Bush days, and now it's, it's just, it keeps evolving into a different form, whatever the current president's act is on his education department pushes this whole evaluation. How are we going to raise the bar for schools? And the only way they've been able to, the only creativity way they've been able to come up with this is take these tests. We need to be able to hold them accountable, compare them to other states, compare them to other schools. And, and, it's, and then the evaluation tool that comes with all those in every state, that's how teachers are evaluated. So, we're trained to teach the whole child, but we're, te- we're giving a test at the end of the year that evaluates each child, and teachers are evaluated based on how the kids do on that test. So it's a, it's a circle that doesn't work. How can we not teach the test but know that at the end of the year, job security, those kids have to do well on that test? So teachers are put in a very, very tough position to try to not teach towards this horrible high-stakes three- or four-day test at the end of the year, but if you don't, and your kids don't do well, then you're considered a lousy teacher. So that's a problem. And then also, because of the competition and that we keep hearing that, you know, America's falling behind in its education, we're, we're you know, 32nd, or I think we're 22nd in math right now and uh, 18th in literacy compared around the world um, as a superpower that shouldn't be happening. Um, so what do we do? How do we make our kids smarter? Let's give them more to learn. Um, so we're just throwing mountains and mountains and mountains of content at kids and hoping that the kids will learn more so that they can do better. And we show that we're a smarter country. But what that's doing is making it harder for teachers every single day to dive into a topic. We are just, you know, like I always tell the kids the metaphor of, you know, when you're writing or when you're when you're talking, when you're debating, you can't stand up here and sit in a boat and smack your hands in the water. The real jewels, the real treasures at the bottom. You got to dive deep. You got to get in there to the to the. The roots, you got to get down to the bottom of the lake so we can see what you're talking about. That's where the good stuff is. And when you got, you know, the, the standards that are given to teachers right now of what we're supposed to have our kids learn by, before this test comes around, you're barely splashing the water. So the kids aren't learning anything deep. They're not critically thinking. They're not able to develop that, that debate mentality or that, you know, that ability to just dive deep because we, we're just skimming the surface. And until, our educational system really takes a step back and says, what do we really need these kids to know? And really think about it. Listen to the business world. Listen to the, um, the, the feedback that they're getting. Listen to educators. Until they decide to make that change, it's, the cycle's not going to change because what we're just creating is a bunch of kids who can uh, memorize and regurgitate information on tests. And then when they get to the real world, 
man, it's, it's ugly. The, the, the professional world, we can talk about millennials, we can talk about them in any way we want to. But when they, when these kids come there and they're so smart in the sense of memorize information, but their ability to take on tasks and be creative and critically think is holding them back. And if we don't address that, none of those numbers are going to go up. It's just going to be one of those situations where we're stuck in this cycle of negativity. I'm talking to the positivity guru. I can't I have No, We can't have that. <laughs> this is exactly. really bad. This is everything you're saying makes so much sense. Um, I, the technology piece, I can't even imagine because you're talking to a generation of like 30 or say 25 to, you know, 60 year olds. And these kids coming in might actually know a lot more than us <laughs> from a technology standpoint. And here we have to try to train and teach them on it. Exactly. And, you know, and what's interesting, I heard a superintendent um, five or six years ago talk to the staff, talk to our staff and say, you know, just be careful how much technology you're diving into, in, like particular software. He said, because you're preparing kids, if you if you really, if your goal with technology is to prepare kids, um, how do you use such and such a program? You know, they're six, five, six, seven years away from graduating. That technology is not even going to be there. And so it's like, why spend so much? You just want to get it in their hands and you want to let them use it as a creative tool. Then yeah. they'll be ready when they get done. Yeah. And then just on a side note, another crazy comment I heard from that same principal, which was crazy is. He's like, we are, you know, in the past, like going, I guess going back to your other question, in the past, before technology, before the, our world started changing so quickly, you kind of knew what you were preparing kids for. Like, you knew what the job market was like, you knew what the tasks were. Kids kind of knew earlier on in life what they wanted to be when they grew up. You ask kids nowadays in high school what they want to be, and it's like the hardest, it was a hard question for me, but it's really hard for them because, you know, the job market and the, the way the jobs that are being created on a daily basis are so different and unimaginable to us right now. And so what that superintendent told us was just imagine, just really focus in on what you're doing right now. You're creating kids, um, you're, you're preparing kids and creating a system for them to work in a job that hasn't even been created now. Gosh. Think about that. Think about that as a moving target. Oh, We're that trying is to prepare kids for a whole market that doesn't even exist yet. So it's it's mind-boggling. Oh <laughs> my gosh! Uh, yes, very different. Um, so let's go back to you've been doing this for I think sixteen years. Sixteen years. Yes. Yep. So this is who you are. I mean, you are a teacher. You are best teacher in America. At least the runner-up last year. Are you nominated again this year? No, it's I don't. I don't, they probably don't do it too often. If once you get nominated, I think you get your chance and then you got to move on. (laughs) Well, we're going to, we're going to, in the show notes, you have to watch this video because Tal was on the Kelly and Michael show. And when, when this video came on, I just started crying. I'm like, this guy is the best. (laughs) He's helping our country's children. (laughs) Um, It is amazing. What was really kind of funny was how small Kelly Ripa is, (laughs) which we all knew. (laughs) But uh, yeah, definitely, she almost looked like your child. She is tiny, yeah. She's only about 4'11", <laughs> I think. Yeah. But there's a lot of power in um, being able to get out there on that kind of platform and show people what you're all about. So how did you, when did you know you were going to be a teacher? You know what? It goes back to, you know, my dad was a ROTC teacher, um, and that didn't develop until I was probably in... I think I was probably in fifth or sixth grade. He he started teaching at the high school because um, he's a he's a Air Force retiree, 
And so we taught ROTC at the high school. My mom was a secretary at the same high school. So, you know, the educational system was in my blood. I've always had a knack for kids. Just, you know, you know people used to call me the Pied Piper. I'd just be walking around town and there's kids following me. I didn't even know they were back there. They're just kind of <laughs> drawn to the to the big human jungle gym. And, and not in um, a creepy way. This is a good way. No, no. Just there's that goofy guy that always has fun with kids. And so, um I've always known that it was there. I kind of, in high school, I kind of flirted with the idea of not doing it just because, you know, you know, when you're in high school and when you're thinking about your future, you're not thinking about a job that's going to pay you $26,000 a year. You're, you you got bigger goals than that. And But then when you, when you soul search and you really dive in and find out what it is that, you know, luckily I had some people talk to me and just say, you know, pick your job based on what you love. Don't pick your job based on what you want to earn because, you know, that's that's a lot of your life is spent working. And so when I really dived into it, it's, it's teaching, it's working with kids. So that's why I became a teacher. Um, now I think the most common question that's asked to me is why am I teaching elementary school? Uh, when you look at elementary schools, it's normally women. There's not a lot of men that work in the elementary schools, except for the PE teacher, maybe an art or music teacher here and there. Um, very rarely, as I've taught in quite a few States and quite a few schools, are there other males in the building? And, you know, I've taught every grade between fourth and twelfth grade. I did some alternative ed teaching in Michigan for a while. So, my 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 belief is, and I'm basing a lot of this on not scientific facts, just being alive and knowing what I was like in high school. My belief is, if you truly want to make an impact and you want to make a change in a kid's life on their on their morals, their beliefs, their drive, all those habits that may, will eventually make you successful. You got to catch them in the fourth through eighth grade, maybe ninth grade um, time frame, because once they get to high school and you have a kid that's not driven, it's really hard to change that pattern. Because I think anyone listening to this podcast probably knows a high school age kid, and when you talk to them, they they know everything. They got it all figured out. They don't need anyone telling them how to do anything anymore. And and so if I can create kids, help shape them, help push them in the direction that teaches them the habits that will really make them successful, the internal drive, the internal motivation, the, the, the need to succeed based on internal values, not because of a test score, but just wanting to be the best at what they, everything they do and not being OCD about it, just giving your all, embracing failure, finding struggle, finding that joy in tough tasks. When they get to high school, that's already embedded in them. That's who they are. And so then they start taking these classes and you know, these t- if, if we all had kids that came to high school at that manner, what would these high school teachers be able to do? How far could they raise the roof if kids were like, I don't care, bring it on, bring a struggle. That's what I'm into. Like, make it tough for me instead of kids who are terrified of failure and terrified of um, not doing well or shut down or the communication skills are so poorly because of the cell phones and the smartphones and what it's done to their ability to communicate. So I wanted to change the culture from a place where I felt I could have the biggest impact. And to me, that's fourth, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth grade. You know, there's a, you mentioned this a few times, this uh, ability to embrace failure. I fully agree. I come to this more from an athletic perspective, but if you don't lose some races, you don't understand the beauty of winning the races and you can't appreciate what, where you get in life. So how I I there's been a culture shift somewhere along the lines where nobody loses anymore mm-hmm. in school and sports and I don't understand how that happened and when it happened 
What's your thought on this? You know what? It's I, I jokingly have a million dollar idea that says I want to create vending machines that have trophies and ribbons in them. Okay, that's and like a hundred million dollar idea. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's just on every street corner in America and someone comes up, they put in their money and you just type in what you're great at and the machine gives you an award for it. And I think that's a huge problem with kids and parents. When I was a kid, I'm an old man now, I'm saying when I was a kid. When I was a kid, um, <laughs> if you didn't win, there was no trophy. Like there was no, I remember leaving that field ticked off and the coach is telling you, like remember what I'm saying to you, and you probably had this as an athlete as well, when you don't win, they're not coming up and saying everything's okay. They're going to console you because they're compassionate human beings, but they're also like, don't forget this feeling. Remember this feeling. Let it fuel you in the off season. Let it make you understand how important it is for you to work hard so you don't feel this again. So, you know, you're embracing that failure. You're learning from it. Yeah, it stings. It hurts, but it's growth. That's how you grow. And I think I think something has happened, and I don't, don't think I'm educated enough to truly know the background of this, but something has happened where parents on that, on that aspect, and I'm a parent right now, and I'm struggling with this a little bit myself, not letting our not letting our kids suffer. It's it's something where we somehow our generation has allowed it for kids when they when they do suffer when something doesn't go well. Well, you did your best. That's all that matters, and, that, and that's a great phrase. But and if they truly did do their best, that's all that matters. But I think a lot of times we're not making sure that they are doing their best, and then also just saying, you know what? What can we learn from this? That's so a simple phrase like that. What can we learn from this? Like, yeah, you you fell apart. You didn't. Your team didn't win. You had a horrible game. You you struggled through you know this race or you struggled through class or what? We just haven't been able to embrace the idea that that's okay. It stings. It hurts. But it it it's you know it's part of what shapes who we are. And I think any athletes that are listening to this know it. Like, there's nothing worse than losing as an athlete because you, especially if you're a uber competitive athlete like I was and like I know you are, um, there's nothing worse than losing. And you're ticked off, and you handle it in different ways. I some when I lost games in high school and college as a basketball player, I remember just getting back on the bus or the plane, whatever it would be, and just like enraged with anger because I did not like losing. But after a while, it starts to sink in. You start to process, and once you can be reflective on what happened, why did we lose? You know, and not say, "Oh, that person made us lose," but what did what was my role in this loss or this setback? Then growth happens, and I think that's the most powerful coaches we have out there. The ones that identify with that and say, "Yeah, we lost. Now let's learn from it. Not let's just go make everyone run and suffer. Let's make them learn from this moment. How do we move forward?" And I think it's hard for parents and teachers and coaches nowadays to do that for whatever reason because the especially in high school I, I coached high school basketball for a while and it's really tough to see these to have kids struggle because they're just not used to it because they haven't had to embrace struggle throughout their life because when they're there we pick them up too quickly and we we're there to make sure everything's okay instead of letting them struggle let them learn from this and um, it is a culture that I don't know we have to fix it because you know, I one of the metaphors I use for that is kids nowadays have a safety net that's actually attached to their body. They will not fall. We need to move that safety net down a little farther, let them fall, and then move it down a little farther so that they can start taking risks and seeing that the fall is part of the process. And, and hopefully that will start to fix the whole idea that losing, you know, is the end of the world. It's not the end of the world. It's where we learn. It's where we grow. It shapes our... I mean, 
I'm 42 years old and I can still remember most of the games I've lost, the, the tests I did poorly on, the struggles that I've had in my life, but all of them have made me who I am right now. If I didn't have those things, I wouldn't be sitting here talking on a podcast to the amazing Nicole DeVoe. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I'm like cringing because I've got a four-year-old and I, I'm not tough enough with her. And Tim's tougher than me with her, but like we're both pretty soft. And here we are, hardcore <laughs> athletes. And yet I do not want to let her go through that stuff. But you're so right that losing, failing, that's what actually ends up making you a more confident person. Coming all the way back to the word that's so important to you. It's mm -hmm. just, it's mind-blowing that you have to put yourself through that tough stuff to come out a stronger person. It is. And it's, I tell the kids all the time, find a biography of a great person that doesn't have at least half of that book about the struggle. Whatever it is they overcame. Greatness comes when you can overcome these things. And there's a ton of people out there that went through way worse things than what these phenomenal biographies are written about. But they didn't overcome them. Or just that 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 uh, negative experience or that horrible setback, whatever it was, defined them and it sent them into a cycle of negativity rather than, mm -hmm. all right, pull yourself back up. Let's learn from this and let's be great. And that's where... You know that's that's unfortunate, and but it does when when you make that statement to kids, and then they really embrace the idea. Let me go find a biography of someone you know other than, and I don't consider these real biographies, the Kardashians or the Hiltons, but any other than that, most people have, <laughs> most people have earned their greatness through struggle and through perseverance and through yeah. traumatic moments, and sometimes not traumatic, but just born into poverty and turned into greatness, born into a horrible situation at home and turned into greatness, or. You know, there's just there's a thousand examples of people out there that have done great things, but very few examples of people out there that have done great things without a struggle. Mm -hmm. And so, great point. Yeah. So anybody who's listening, who's got a struggle going on, be it a little tiny one that's just dealing with your day, or a big one you're dealing with, uh, remember you can have a little perspective here and embrace it. Like allow yourself to embrace the struggle. Don't try to fight it. Let it be. Yeah. Let it sink in, and then once you get a chance to scrape the scrape the blood off the knee, or get over the anger, or you know, you, you you can be sad. That's fine. You can be upset, but bounce back, and then be reflective. What can I learn from this moment? See, and, well, one of the things I love about you is how real you are, and humble, and and personal with your own you know life. And I think about here's. There's habits of people who are truly great and who are making change in this world. And you're one of those people who's making change in this world. And it started in your classroom, but it's growing. And in five or ten years, we're going to see a whole different, I think, side of what Tal Thompson is bringing to this world. But tell me some of your little habits. Like, do you have a morning routine? Or tell me about your family and how they play into this side of you. Oh, the family. I love, love, love my family. Um... My routine, as far as what what I do to my my style of teaching, demands a lot for me. Um, and then I go home and I have an eight year old little boy named Reese and a um, twenty month old little boy named Cole, and they demand a little bit of uh, energy as well for me. Uh, so I have to I have to have if I when I'm doing my best job as a teacher and you reflect back and look at when am I. When am I the most creative? When am I getting through the day with the most energy? When are my kids leaving the classroom knowing that Mr. Thompson just rocked it all day and did his job? Um, that all comes from two 
very, three very, very important factors. And everyone listening to this podcast, if they're listening to this, knows this because they listen to Call to Boom. But I have to work out. I have to work out. I have to get in the morning. I have to work out. I can't work out in the evenings where I won't sleep. I have to work out in the morning. So I set my alarm super early. And this is probably probably something that I wouldn't suggest, but I set my alarm for an hour before I'm going to work out. And then I get out of bed and I have to drink two cups of coffee before I go work out. So <laughs> I'm with you. <laughs> I have to, and I drink them rather quickly because I, you know, I want them in my system. I want them in there for at least a half hour just doing that magical coffee bean thing that they do. Um, so then, and then I go to the gym and it's about a half mile from my house and I meet a buddy of mine there, um, who's a super motivational guy. He's just a perfect person to work out with. He designs all my workouts and with me and we just, we have a blast and have a good time and, you know, we're obnoxiously giddy at, in the gym for an hour every morning. And then, um, <laughs> and then I have to, some of the things, so I guess there's, there's three main things. Then I have to be prepared. Um, when I'm my most successful and I'm doing my best job is when I'm prepared and I, the night before I have, actually on Sundays I make my food for the week except for dinner. So everything's in the refrigerator by day and I just throw it in my lunchbox and I go to school and I have my five meals a day, but they're, you know, small portions and balance of nutrition and that, that needs to happen for the fuel that I need to get me through the day. Um, if I'm not prepared, when I wake up in that morning, sometimes I'll slack and I don't have a real it's not written out what I'm going to do and I'll find a different way to eat during the day. And once I start that bad pattern, it's hard to break out of it that day. So that's another thing that has to happen. And then I have to, I have to sleep. And that's probably the hardest one of those three for me to do because once I get home from school around five, five thirty, I play with the kids for a couple hours, try to get as much time in with the family as possible. You know, the little one goes to bed around seven and then the older one goes to bed around eight thirty, and, we try to have as much fun as we can and go outside, do whatever it is that we're trying to accomplish. And then when they go to bed, then it's time for me to, you know, to work. You know, like I got to get ready for the next day of school. I got to work on speech. This this year I was working on speech stuff and branding things. And um, so then before you know it, it's it's time to go to bed. And I need to get in bed. I need for me to be most successful. I need somewhere between six and a half to seven hours of sleep. Um, and that doesn't always work for me. And when that doesn't work, then all those other two things struggle the next day. The workout isn't as effective as it needs to be. I'm dragging all day. And so I, when I'm dragging, I find ways to throw more sugar in my body, which is not the answer. It feels like the answer. But it's so not you're the human, in other words. <laughs> I, I, I think I am, yeah. So if I'm not prepared and I'm not planning, that's not. it's not going to be successful for me. Oh, this is really good stuff. Um, yeah, I think people can really take some good notes here. Okay, we, we're running a little long today, so I'm going to wrap it with a few questions here. Okay. So, okay, at your stage and age in life, what is that thing that gives you purpose that you that helps you get out of bed in the morning and get through your day? The kids, clearly, my, my, my kids. Um, I think every teacher, if there's any teachers out there listening to this, when, when, when you're a teacher before you have kids... You're, you, you go out there and you have this vision of what you want to do and you, you got into teaching because you want to change the world or that you're just passionate about kids or whatever it is. And But you don't really get it. You don't get the impact that you need to make because you don't have your own kids. And then when Reese came along, you kind of go through, and I think I've talked to several women about this, and it might be a little even tougher for them just because of that super powerful bond between an infant and a mom. Um, but you kind of look out in that class for a while and you kind of, regret coming to school or you take it out on the kids because they're they're kind of the reason that you're not sitting at home with your baby or with this wonderful new addition to your life 
And then at some, and I don't think that lasts very long. I just think it's hard to come back to school after you've had a baby. But then I think a little bit, a little time after that, somewhere along the lines, then you start to see, maybe figuratively, metaphorically, I'm not sure, but you start to, for me, I start to see my kid in my student's eyes. And I look out there and I know that the value of your job, the value of what you do goes exponentially up because you can't let those kids down because you see your kid in those kids. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And so it drives you, it motivates you. And you know, when that kid, before you have kids, you know, that kid goes home and you think about your kids. They never leave your mind, you know, your, your students. But when those kids go home from, from your classroom, after you have your own kids, you know, the struggles they're going through, you know, what expectations you have on them and you know, what you're, what you're, what you're doing to the family life of those people at home. So it just becomes so important for you to set them up for success, to set them up because you don't want their parents to struggle with this situation. You don't want the kids to struggle with the situation unless they're prepared to struggle. So you just, it drives you to do, to be the best version of yourself as a teacher mm-hmm. when you know you don't want to let kids down. And that, that is what really drives me. I just, I cannot fail kids. It, it crushes me. Wow. Man, there's some passion in there. So what's next, other than moving up to fifth grade? <laughs> what's next for you? Well, you know, the Kelly Michael show was kind of thrust upon me. I didn't see it coming. I didn't have any idea that was going to happen. And then, you know, I was riding the wave of the Kelly Michael show, just how awesome I was. You know, fly your family to New York City, get to be on the show, meet Michael and Kelly. And, you know, my we, our youngest was very, very young. I mean, he was five, six months old. And then... He didn't really get to experience. He was there with my mom. But, you know, Reese is like getting to hang out in downtown in New York City, just having a blast. And when you come off that buzz, you get out, you leave the show and you start to come home in my email inbox and Facebook and uh, all these different ways of communicating with me are just blown up with all these people saying, I love what you do. That's so passionate. The video was awesome. I went in tons of teachers and principals and administrators reaching out to me just saying we would love to have that kind of passion in our classroom, blah, blah, blah. And so it started to feel like, man, I need to get out and talk to people. I want to, I want to, I want to help other people the way I've been helped by people in my life that have inspired me. And so that's kind of led me to where we're at right now, which is I want to, I want to go help train teachers. I want to inspire teachers. I want to be a champion for teachers. Um, I think it's one of the toughest jobs in America right now. And besides the the obvious, no, no one gets into teaching expecting to get rich, but there are rewards to teaching. And I think some of those rewards are becoming harder and harder to find because of the way the system is set up. So I want to I want to be a voice for the teachers and help champion a change. 50% of all teachers that come into teaching don't make it to their fifth year because it's just not the job it used to be. It's it, the rewards that should be there to fill our bucket, to fill our soul are becoming less and less. So I want to fight for them. I want to go train teachers on how to work with their classroom so that you can still get those test scores, which I get, my kids get really good test scores, but I never talk about it, never teach to it because I create kids that can survive that, that environment and do well. And I want to show teachers that you can be, you can have a lot of fun in your classroom and you can put kids through a lot of different scenarios and fun activities and really, really challenge them more so than you ever have. And they'll be successful and they'll love it. They won't, the challenges won't be so tough that they'll hate school. They'll be inspired. Like, bring it on, dude. Bring, what's the next tough challenge? I'm ready for it. And um, so I want to speak. I want to train. I want to, I want to help be a voice and be a, a cause for change in this system. And I want to inspire because I, I just, you know, I got an eight, a 20 month old and eight year old and, and, 
they need to be grow up in a world where education is shifting in the right direction because you know the kids that are in my room are the future leaders of our country i hope and i'm hoping that every teacher in america is able to push kids to the highest of their expectations and make the changes that we need to because I love America and I love what's, um, I love my kids are growing up in America, but I, I don't think there's anyone out there that looks out and says America's in a great place right now. Um, I want, I want to be a help in the cause for change. And I think that all starts with our kids. They, they're the, they're the ones that are going to make the change and it may take a while for them to get there, but I want to speak to the masses and see how many of them I can get to jump on board and start the change that needs to take place. Amazing. Love it. All right. Well, last question I ask everybody on the show. So the name of my podcast is called Run This World. And I always ask for one little piece of advice, one nugget that anyone listening could use to run their worlds in bigger and better ways than they did before. Um, I would say from the, from the seat that I'm sitting in, if there was one way that every person out there could run their world a little better, I would say be reflective. And I think it's such a powerful tool that I did not always do. And I think sports brought that out of me and then the, and you know, the, the passion of working with kids, but over time being reflective, uh, I'm, I haven't always been this person, but you know, I have, I, I'm, I have a daily ritual that starts in the morning during that, that hour phrase where I, I write down things I'm grateful for. Um, in my journey, like when I plan my day, I have this binder that has the plan for the day. I write down things I'm grateful for. But I also, at the end of the day, before I go to bed in that same thing, there's a section on my planner that I made myself that just says, what have I learned? What caused havoc? What can I learn from today? And I think it's real powerful if you just make it intentional to learn from your day. Learn from something that happened, even if it's great. It doesn't always have to be, you know, I failed this, I got to learn this. Like, you could, some of the stuff that I write down I learned today is that something that went really well. I had no idea that that would go that well. That brought that much joy into my life. And so when you write it down, it becomes intentional. So be reflective in what you do on a daily basis and let that fuel how your next day will be better. Wow. All right, everybody, you've just been schooled by Tao. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're not writing down and taking notes on this podcast, don't worry because you can always download it again and listen and listen and listen. Tal, you are amazing. Everybody, you need to watch his incredibly powerful video. It's on um, from the Evosa Live Talk we did, and I will have a snapshot of it and a link to it on the show notes. So definitely need to watch that because you're going to feel like you know this guy and you're going to want to meet him someday. Tal, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. All right, you guys, how cool is Tal Thompson? I don't know about you, but I am sitting here wishing he had been my teacher, at least at some stage in my life, and maybe that he could still be my teacher. He's sort of an unusual person for me to have on the show in a sense, but he's really not because he is truly a visionary and he's making so much change in this world. And you know what? He was actually an athlete growing up and he still is, as you could see by his morning routine, which I actually think is brilliant. I love the idea of heading out to the gym and being giddy like a little kid working out every morning. Don't you kind of wish you could feel that way still? Um... What I think is that if you want to connect with him, head over to Tall Tal in the show notes on NicoleDeBoom.com. He's such a skilled speaker and motivator. If you see any need or place for him to come out and speak, 
definitely reach out to him. And if you have a moment, please check out the talk he did, the Evoso Live talk on the same stage as me in June of 2016. You will get some more insight than he even shared on this podcast episode. And finally, if you want to have another little laugh and cry, check out his Kelly and Michael clip because that thing truly is brilliant. He is just a rock star. I love that he has to bring five meals a day to school because he moves so much. Gosh, love it. So for all of you sitting on the couch right now or sitting at your chair at your desk listening to a podcast while you're working, which is okay as long as you're still productive, keep in mind that moving is good. So at some point, get off your butt, move around a little bit. And on that note, we're going to end it for today. You know what time it is. It's time to get out there and run this world. Have a great workout, and we will see you next week.